Actually, we will, it'll be a few minutes before we open our Bibles, but we will. Uh, talking about big questions that need big answers and various aspects of, of challenges to the Christian faith, why we really ought to believe uh, the things that we believe, why there is good reason uh, to be a Christian. Um, the, the Christian faith is not a, a leap into the dark. Uh, it's not blind faith. Uh, but as one man has said, God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. But he has left enough out to make it impossible for us to live by reason alone. So we live by faith and reason. Now, if, if we are able to see that faith in God and, and specifically the Christian religion is a reasonable thing, then we ought to expect to find some answers to the big questions that bother us or that, uh, that sometimes uh, seem to confront our faith, why we believe, how can we believe the things that we believe. Now again, I, I want to remind you, as I've said a number of times, um, don't expect to find answers to all of your questions. Um, also, probably don't expect the... Don't expect all of the potential answers to make you happy. Um, may I just say, there are some of these issues and some of these questions that have, while they may not be definitive answers, they are potential answers. They are, they are ways of helping us think through the difficulties that we encounter. And... Hopefully we recognize that there are some of those explanations that, that while maybe we don't like them, they, they have some validity, even though we may not like them. We started last week, I believe it was last week, talking about Bible difficulties, and we spoke about the character of God and, and this idea of balancing the what we see uh, of God as a God who, who emphasizes justice and holiness and occasionally brings judgment on sinful people. How can we balance that with uh, a God of love and mercy and grace? And uh, we spoke about that last week. Today, uh, I want to talk about um, this, this question. We find it in Genesis chapter 3. Hath God said, as the King James would put it. Uh, if you remember your Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, we read about Eve uh, being tempted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And you remember uh, that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and they were given the instructions uh, that they were able to eat of any of the fruits of the trees of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't partake of that one tree. 
And when Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent to begin tempting her to sin, tempting her away from obedience to God, the first thing that he did was to try to get her beginning to question the voice of God. Has God said? Has God really spoken? We ask this question today, and we as Bible-believing Christians, we would be quick, most of us, I assume, to answer this question if we look at it generically and, and simply say, hath God said? We're not talking about anything specifically, but simply asking the question, has God spoken? Has God uh, revealed himself in any way to his creation? And we would be quick to say, yes, God has spoken. God is a speaking God. He is a God who has revealed himself by his prophets. He is a God who has spoken to us by his Son. Both of these ideas come to us from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners has in past times spoken unto us by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So God has spoken by the prophets. He has spoken by his Son. God has also spoken to us by his witnesses. By his witnesses, this is what I'm calling uh, the apostles, the disciples, uh, and those that became followers because of the testimony of the disciples. Basically, the people that left to us the record of Jesus' life and teachings in the New Testament. You remember that when Jesus was on this earth, he promised his followers, the disciples, that uh, he, he said, it is good for you that I go away, because when I go away, I will send to you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will remind you of the things that I have spoken to you. And really, it is because of this promise that we have the New Testament that we have today. It's because uh, the Holy Spirit reminded the disciples, the followers of Jesus, of the teachings of Jesus. And so we have now a record of God speaking through the prophets and by his son and by his witnesses. And that record is what we call the Holy Bible. The Holy Bible. Now, one of the key beliefs, one of the important things that we believe about the Bible is that it is inerrant. The word inerrant simply means that it is without error, without error or without mistake. If you want a logical definition for this or what we would call a logical syllogism, how many of you learned about syllogisms in school? Anybody? Study log? Okay. A, a syllogism is, is this. You have, you have a, a, a premise, premise one, and then you have something that aligns with premise one, premise two. Then you have a therefore conclusion. That's a syllogism. So a, here is a logical statement about the inerrancy of Scripture. God cannot err. Would you agree with that? God cannot err. Premise number two, the Bible is God's word. 
The Bible is God's word. Therefore, here's the conclusion. The logical conclusion of those two premises is this. The Bible is inerrant. If God cannot err and the Bible is God's word, then the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. And we believe this to be true relating only to the original manuscripts, the original writings. That's an important ingredient. If you want to hear the article of faith from the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, our statement regarding Scripture, it goes like this. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Plenary is another important word regarding inspiration and inerrancy. Plenary is a word that simply means the totality or the whole. In other words, we don't take one isolated uh, phrase or passage of Scripture out of the Bible and say this is the Word of God. What we believe is that it is the Bible as a whole is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. You know, if you take, if you take a, a Scripture out of context, you can prove by the Bible that there is no, Bi- that there is no God. Did you know that? There is a place in the Bible where it says there is no God. However, if you put that verse in its context, the context of that verse says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. It's one of the reasons we believe in plenary inspiration, the Bible as a whole. By which we understand, continuing to quote from the Nazarene Articles of Faith, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. We believe in the inerrancy of the word of God, that God's word in its original manuscripts is without error or without mistake. Now, this leads, to, leads us to the question, what do we do with Bible difficulties? Bible difficulties. I'm not going to talk about Bible mistakes or Bible errors because we, do, we, we don't believe there are any errors in the Bible. But there are plenty of difficulties in the Bible, things that are hard to understand. You see, I mentioned a moment ago about the entrance of sin into this world and all of the brokenness that accompanied the entrance of sin. That all really started when the serpent asked Eve, has God really said? Has God really said? Disobedience to God and sin came into this world beginning with this simple doubt of what God had said. Has God really said? And I believe one of the problems that we are seeing in the world today and, and primarily a problem in the church today, I, I'm careful, I try to be careful what directions I go and I, I don't want to be really controversial, but I don't believe we can be too controversial when we're in line with God's word. Amen? Amen? shouldn't be really that 
consider that controversial. I believe one of the reasons that there are mainstream denominations today who once their doctrine, in fact, I think still their, their doctrine, if you were to look at their, their, their books, I'm talking about the, the United Methodist Church, if you were to look at, their, at their, uh, the record of their doctrine, you would see that doctrinally they would still align with the th- same things that we believe. However, they are splitting because they can no longer figure out what marriage ought to be. They can no longer understand or figure out that marriage, as defined by God's word, as God intends it to be, should be between one man and one woman for life. And there are people that are saying, well, it should be okay to, to marry couples of the same sex, of the same gender. So you have a husband with a husband, or a wife with a wife. Why is that happening? I believe one of the reasons it's happening is because many churches are deviating from this understanding of the fact that God's Word inerrantly reveals His will for us. And if we can begin calling it into question in certain places and saying, well, I'm not sure if this is really the Word of God, I'm not sure if this is, maybe this is not really what God meant, then... We can open the door wide for all kinds of deviant lifestyles and behaviors. Somebody say amen. And that's just one example. We can go back through, we can go back through history, you know, um, and, and see various examples of this problem. Has God really said? Did God really mean what he said when he said this? And friends, can I tell you that the adversary of our souls still approaches and confronts you and I with the question, has God really said? And he is busy in our colleges and busy, I believe, right now, sadly, even in our Nazarene universities, persuading people to ask the question, has God really said? And quite honestly, friends, this is one of the things, and I've, Lord help me, I don't know if we're, we're being recorded, I'm not sure who all may end up hearing this, but um, it's one of the things, when I came back to the Church of the Nazarene, I, I was originally ordained in a different holiness denomination, coming back to the Church of the Nazarene felt like coming home to me, because it's the church that I grew up in. But one of the things that troubled me then and troubles me still today is exactly this issue that, that as a denomination in our schools and our colleges, the young graduates, people that are going into the ministry out of the Church of the Nazarene are, are getting weak on this issue about the inerrancy of Scripture. I understand there's a position to the right of us that we probably don't want to go to, but neither do we want to go the other direction in, into liberal theological textual criticism and call everything in the Bible to question and say, well, this is, you know, some of it's probably myth and legend and, and you know, it's not really, doesn't really mean what it says. God help us. 
That's not in my notes. I didn't intend to say all that. One of the things that skeptics of the Bible will bring to our attention if they find you are a Bible-believing Christian is this. There are errors in the Bible. The Bible is full of errors. Don't you know the Bible is full of contradictions? To which I want to ask, really, is it really full of contradictions? Next time somebody tells you that, ask them to give you three examples. If, if the Bible is full of contradictions, it shouldn't be very hard to mention three examples. And I would venture to say that 80 to 90% of the time, the people that tell you the Bible is full of contradictions will not even be able to give you three. Now, I will tell you they are, there are appearances of contradictions in the Bible, appearances of error. But again, remember what I said a moment ago. There are Bible difficulties, but there are not Bible contradictions, Bible errors. Why does inerrancy matter? Why does it matter? Why is it important that we believe this is the Word of God and inerrantly reveals to us God's will? Why is it important that we believe that? Well, we, it is important because it's based on the character of God. You remember the logical uh, statement, the, the syllogism, God, is, uh, God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore the Bible is inerrant. Um, inerrancy is based on the character of God. God cannot lie. God cannot lie intentionally because he is an absolute moral lawgiver. And he cannot err unintentionally because he is omniscient and knows all things. Therefore, it is impossible for God to lie or for God to err. And if the Bible is the written word of God and we believe that it is, then it must be without error. It's based on the character of God. Inerrancy matters because it was taught by Christ and the apostles. It was taught by Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. This should be our primary basis for believing in inerrancy. To quote Jesus himself, John chapter 10, verse 35, he says, Scripture cannot be broken or violated. And in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass away until it is all accomplished. Christ and the apostles believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Also, it is the historic position of the church. Did you realize that until about 100 or 150 years ago, maybe 200 years ago now, that most all of the Christian religion, the, the, the church, believed in the inerrancy of Scripture? I have a quote, but I'm not going to take the time to read it. Just... Understand, historically, since the very beginning, the very foundation of the Christian church, we have historically believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Fourth, it's important, it matters, because it is foundational to all essential Christian doctrines. Now, it's important that we understand there, there are other doctrines that are more essential to our salvation. Don't, 
don't fall out of your seat, but you can be a truly born-again Christian without believing in the inerrancy of Scripture. You, you can be. You're, you're, you're wrong about that, but you can be truly born again without believing in the inerrancy of Scripture. However, believing the belief in the inerrancy of Scripture is foundational to other doctrines because they derive their authority from the authority of God's Word. And if we undermine the Scripture by saying it's full of errors, it's full of contradictions, then we undermine the authority of the essential doctrines of God's Word that we believe in. And let me, let me quickly mention to you, and this is important for we as Nazarenes, the Bible, uh, or our article of faith, uh, regarding the Bible is, is the fourth article of faith. It's not the first article of faith. And that's important because our first article of faith is regarding the identity and the character of God. And we have then an article of faith regarding Jesus Christ and then an article of faith regarding the Holy Spirit and the role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then fourth is the article of faith regarding the Scripture. Why? Why does that matter? Because it, it matters regarding the authority of Scripture. The, the Bible is authoritative, but its authority is a derived authority. It's not a primary authority. The, this, is, this is one of the big differences between the Church of the Nazarene and what we would call uh, denominations that are fundamentalists, like uh, a lot of Baptists and, and Calvinistic churches, things of that nature. Th many of them would possibly consider the Bible as the primary authority. Well, we believe that God is the primary authority, and God's Word says that He has given His authority to Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ, and then the authority from Christ has been, that is, vested authority. You know the difference between vested and invested? Something that is vested is something that is inherent, not inerrant without error, but in, inherent with an H. Um, in other words, it, it has its authority built in. God has his authority built in. Uh, Jesus has that authority given to him by the Father. And then that authority from Jesus has been further invested into the apostles and prophets and into his holy word. Is everybody okay? Everybody with me? All right. So let's move on. Where does inerrancy matter? Where does inerrancy matter? Um, if it's important that it matters, where in the Bible does it matter? Some people, as I just mentioned, would say everywhere. Like I, and I've I've said it myself. I've you know and and you know sometimes you this is a generalization. And probably an overgeneralization. I've said, I believe that the Word of God is true, and I believe it from Genesis to maps. Is everybody awake? 
Okay, have you ever looked in the back of your Bible? You probably have maps there. Okay, all right. Um, Some people say everywhere it matters. Every single detail of the Bible, and that's where it matters that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm not going to throw stones at people that believe that. I would rather see people believe that than to have them believe that the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. But I think it's hard to say that inerrancy matters everywhere in the Bible in every single detail um, because we have things like hyperbole in the Bible. You know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is is just an over, kind of an overstatement. Not exactly an exaggeration, but it's an overstatement. So, for example, when in the Gospels we read about Jesus in his ministry, and it says all of Capernaum came out to see him. Believing in the inerrancy of Scripture does not demand that we look at that statement that says all of Capernaum came out to see him. It doesn't demand that we say, well, that means that every man, woman, boy, and girl left their house, sick or well, and they came out to see Jesus, and there was nobody left in Capernaum except for those people that had come out to see Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. No, it doesn't make sense? Yes, it does make sense? Okay. All right. Um, That's an example of hyperbole. Um. You can believe in inerrancy without demanding that those kinds of statements be literally true. Um, and and uh, let me pause here just to interject. There might be some of you that differ with me on this, and that's and that's okay. Um, that's okay. Uh, what about statistics, numbers in the Bible? Um, when the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus fed 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, believing in inerrancy does not demand that we say there had to be exactly 5,000, not 4,987. Everybody with me? Okay. So, and this is another example of where you can find, um, if you go to the Old Testament, there are parallel accounts of places in the Old Testament where they are reporting on numbers, numbers of troops or numbers of, of, of tribes. And in some of those parallel accounts, the numbers differ. What do we do with that? We say, well pastor, then that means there's a mistake in the Bible. No, it doesn't. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, First, I want to answer this question. Where does inerrancy matter? This passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and if you want to open your Bibles, this would be where I would encourage you to do so. This passage tells us where inerrancy matters the most. Now, I'm not limiting inerrancy to, the, to, to what is contained in, the, in this verse, but I'm saying this tells us where inerrancy matters the most. 
And this is the key verse, the primary passage about what the Bible teaches about itself. Verse 15, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There, number one. The Bible tells us inerrantly how to be saved. And anywhere the Bible is dealing with salvation, we can believe that it is without error. The Bible tells us where it is from. And which, by the way, you keep following these details, it gets broader and and tighter. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So all Scripture, and that primarily refers to the Old Testament, is breathed out by God, is inspired by God. So that tells us where it is from, and we can believe without doubt that this is God's Word. It is from God. It tells us what it is good for, what it is good for. The Bible is profitable for teaching. That is doctrine, the path on which we are to walk. It is profitable for reproof. That is, it tells us when we are off the path. It is profitable or good for instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness. And that tells us how to stay on the path. And when the Bible is dealing with these things, the Bible is inerrant. It is without flaw, without error. It also tells us the purpose, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, let me mention, I'm not limiting inerrancy to these categories only, but what I would tell you this morning from from my personal understanding is that this is a minimum of our understanding of inerrancy, that when the Bible is dealing with these areas, that it is inerrant. So, question, what should we do when there appear to be errors in God's Word? What should we do when there appears to be errors in God's Word? Such as the example I mentioned a moment ago. When you read parallel accounts in the Old Testament, and you can read in one place the number is so many, and a number another place the number is different and and you would say well that must be it must be an error the bible is has mistakes in it let me read to you a quote from saint augustine he said this if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in scripture it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken but either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong or you have not understood Those are the three possibilities. When we read the Bible, and I don't know why it is, people are so quick to want to say, oh, Bible's wrong. Here it is. I found it. We don't, people, people don't do that anywhere else, hardly, except the Bible. Well, you know, there might be, you you know, you, you have that, maybe you have that friend that's always right and never wrong about anything, and, you know, you can't wait to catch them in an error, a mistake. And if you do, you're quick to say, aha, I gotcha. People tend to approach the Bible in the same way. 
But it is not allowable to say the Bible is mistaken. Either the manuscript is faulty. Understand, our belief in inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts only, the, as they were originally written down. What we have now are copies of copies of copies of copies. And you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when we said we can trust the Bible that we have today, the Bibles that we hold in our hands today, to be, I've, I forget the exact percentage, somewhere between 95 to 98% uh, uh, accurate to, the, to what was originally written down so that we can believe it was handed down from generation to generation without essential loss. The variations that do exist in the biblical text, in the manuscripts that are available, none of them have a significant impact on the essential doctrines of the faith. So what do we do with these? Norm Geisler, uh, who is one of the he, if you study apologetics, Norman Geisler is probably one of the most important characters that you will read after or study. Um, he's wrote a number of, written a number of books. Um, when skeptics ask, and it's basically an encyclopedia of questions that skeptics tend to ask and gives potential answers. He's also written another book that I just purchased uh, called When Critics Ask. And it is an encyclopedia that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it has a list of, I don't know, probably all, there might be some missing, but most all of the Bible difficulties that you can find, the discrepancies in the text, and he provides potential answers. In that book, he says that there are basically 17 mistakes that are made by critics who find errors in the Bible. If we can avoid these 17 mistakes when we read and study God's Word, we will do well. I have them uh, because I'm going to read them to you. I'm not going to talk about each one in detail because that would take too long. But I I have copies available to you. I'm going to hand them out at the end of the service. So I want you all to have them. But just quickly, mistakes to avoid when the Bible is difficult. When the Bible is difficult or there appear to be discrepancies, here are some mistakes to avoid. One, assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. For a long time, scientists believed that it was impossible for bumblebees to fly. They, they believed that bumblebees should not be able to fly uh, because of the physics and simply because it was unexplained. But they continued to study and continued to do research. Why? Because they believed that just because it was unexplained didn't mean it was impossible for it to be explained. Okay? All right. Two, presuming the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. I mentioned that a moment ago. Three, confusing our fallible interpretations with God's infallible revelation. There is a difference between interpretation and revelation. And if we find something that we believe to be wrong, it is not because what God has revealed is wrong. It's most likely because our understanding is wrong. Four, failing to understand the context of the passage. You remember I mentioned that to you a moment ago. You can prove from the Bible that there is no God if you take it out of context. 
Five, neglecting to interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages. If you look at the difficult passages only, you're making a mistake. There are almost always a a, a more clear passage that you can go to. Six, basing a teaching on an obscure passage. Um, Let me just throw this out really quickly. Um, If you read something and it occurs only once or twice in the Bible, in God's mind it's probably not all that important. And I'm not saying it's without importance, because if God saw fit to have it recorded in His Word, then it must have some value. But if you only read about it once or twice, it's probably not of that great value. If you read themes from God's Word that occur over and over and over again throughout the Bible, that's a clue that maybe that's something you want to pay attention to. Seven, forgetting that the Bible is a human book with human characteristics. Um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go fast. I'm sorry. I just, some of these things need to be said. Okay, take, take my word for it. They need to be said. Um, that God's word is inspired, God-breathed. Um, as far as we know, the only thing from the Bible that was literally written by the finger of God are the Ten Commandments. Everything else was written using a human instrument. God inspired them by the Holy Spirit. And when it says He inspired them, it does not mean that they became like some kind of a robot and had no will or mind of their own. You can see this easily. When, if that were the case, then the entire Bible would be written in the same style, the same literary format. Using, you would see it throughout, but that's not the case. The 40-some authors that are responsible for writing the Bible, each one, they have different writing styles, different characteristics. Why? Because they were not automatons, but God used them and spoke through them using their own personalities and their own, uh, you know, what they had available to them. Everybody okay? You understand? All right. As I said, if you, if you disagree, if you differ with me, that's, that's okay. It's no problem. Um, number eight, assuming that a partial report is a false report. A partial report is not a false report. In one of the Gospels, it says there was one angel at the tomb. In another of the Gospels, it says there were two angels at the tomb. But a partial report, that's not conflicting. A partial report is not a false report. Have you ever noticed that whenever you have two of something, you always have one first? Okay. Number nine, demanding that New Testament citations of the Old Testament always be exact quotations. Number 10, assuming that divergent accounts are false accounts. Example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They they diverge from one another in various places, but that doesn't mean they are false accounts. If an accident took place out here and four people, one on each corner, saw that accident took place and the police asked each one for a report, each one you would get four different reports of that accident. Why? Because they were all looking at it from a different perspective. 
11, presuming that the Bible approves of all it records. The Bible does not approve of all that it records. The Bible records lies. The Bible records all kinds of, of horrific things that it does not approve of. Number 12, forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical, everyday language. We don't demand that the newscaster on the radio or on the TV says earth rotation will become apparent at 6.47 a.m. No. Why? Because that would be technical language. They simply say sunrise will be at 6.47. Well, the Bible often speaks and records things in the same way. Assuming that round numbers are false, neglecting to note that the Bible uses different literary devices. 15. Forgetting that only the original text, not every copy of Scripture, is without error. Number 16. Confusing general statements with universal ones. This is kind of an important one for me to mention just quickly. The Proverbs are full of general statements that are not true in every single circumstance okay the the proverbs the the wisdom literature in the proverbs are statements that are generally more or less true regarding the results of a wise lifestyle but they're not true in every single example uh, and, and an example of that would be uh, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. That is a general statement that does not turn out to be 100% true. Does not damage the inerrancy of Scripture. Finally, 17, forgetting that later revelation supersedes previous revelation. This is why, thank God, we no longer have to come to church daily and morning and evening sacrifice a lamb for the atonement of our sins. Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sins. Don't forget, make sure you pick one of those up when you leave this morning. Coming to a close, I know a lot of this has been technical in some ways, and maybe tedious, and I don't want to get too distracted by the technical, and I don't want you to get too distracted by the technical either. You see, the real demonstration of the validity of God's Word is not in what we, prove, what we can prove, and its weakness is not in the things that we cannot prove. But rather, the real demonstration of the validity of the Holy Bible is in its power to take a life that is broken and is lost and to transform that life through the power of God. That is the real validity of the Holy Scriptures. I don't know how many of you have heard, uh, anybody familiar with the name Ron Archer? Ron Archer has a, uh, you can look him up. Uh, if you have access to YouTube, look up Ron Archer and the Trick Baby uh, testimony. He was what, in some terms, is known as a trick baby because his mom was a prostitute. And his, his conception was a result of her turning tricks or prostituting herself. Ron Archer said, and I, I, I'm just going to go quickly through his story, but if you have 
the ability to do so, I'd encourage you to look it up and, and listen for yourself. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. But Ron Archer said that at the age of 10 years old, he sat on the edge of a bed with his mother's gun to his head, wanting to die. He said that his mother, through a horrific chain of events in her parents' life, was turned out at the age of 14, and at 14 years of age began selling her body. And at 16, she ended up pregnant. Her pimp, the man responsible for selling her, said, you can't make any money if you're pregnant. And so they kicked her in the stomach and fed her drugs and alcohol and did worse things to try and destroy the life of that baby within her. But the baby would not die. Born two months premature with no pancreas, a bladder too small, and a severe learning disability. Mom, after that point, continued to sell her body, and the little boy was taken care of by, rather than a pimp, she was now under a, a, a madam, a woman who was, had prostitutes under her, uh, that was part of her business. And the madam that was in charge of his mother took care of him, and that madam severely abused him. And Ron Archer said that by the age of 10, he had learned four things. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, and pretend that nothing is happening. And he said that's how, that's why by the age of 10, he said he'd had enough of life and wanted to blow his brains out. But he said in school, they would put him in a boiler room with other children kind of like him, other disabled children, mental uh, handicapped or whatever, and he said they would do nothing but finger paint all day long. But he said there was one teacher there who saw these children as her mission field, and she would bring her Gideon Bible and read stories to him, and, and, and stories about other dysfunctional people whose lives were transformed and used greatly by God. And he said she would tell me, Ronaldo, those who have been hurt deeply can be used greatly, and God can take your pain and turn it into power, and your wounds can be transformed into wisdom. And Ron Archer said as he began to read and memorize the verses from that Gideon Bible, he said that the transforming power of God began to work in his life. He said his stuttering went away, he stopped wetting the bed, and he eventually graduated as valedictorian and became a preacher. And he said, I preached until every single member of my family got saved. How does it happen? Friends, the real power in this book is not because we can prove or fail to prove that it is the inerrant Word of God, but the real power is its power to change and transform the lives of broken people. Praise His name. Let's stand together.